<laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming out. Um, thank you, Brandon, for hosting me here at my school. <laughs> uh, it was a really long journey to get here. In fact, but, but it really was. I just came from Denver. I flew in. I got in at noon. And so I can't quite hear yet. Um, so you'll forgive me um, for that. But... Um, also, I wanted to say, uh, I usually, when I, when, I, when I give readings and I see a podium, like, I just, my, I freak out. And I, because I usually can't see over podiums. Um, and I was giving, <laughs> I know, I know. And I was giving a reading in Pennsylvania and I got it and I was like, wow, that's a tall podium. And I could, like, I could see literally one inch over the podium. And, and the, the room was packed. It was huge. And my friend was like, how about a step stool or, or a phone book? And I was like, that's embarrassing, dude. I'm not going to step on a freaking step stool and give a reading. So I tried the step stool, and um, it was maybe three or four inches tall. And I looked at the room, and I was, I, I was like, this is what the average human sees. <laughs> and I couldn't take it. I, I just got off the stool, and I was like, you just, you're just going to have to deal with it. Um, so there was no purpose to anything of what I just said, but I will read, um, <laughs> I, I will read, uh, three essays for you. Um, well, actually, uh, th this worked out well yesterday, um, in the middle of my reading, this, I don't know, something weird was happening outside, like people were excited about um, life, and I was like, okay, let me tell you guys a joke. This isn't mine, so I'm not going to take credit for it. But you'll appreciate it. My students already know this one. The past, present, and future walk into a bar. It was tense. <laughs> <laughs> and now for some art. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to read three essays, but two of them are very short. <clears throat> On the genesis of opportunity. Before there is metanoia, there is Kairos. He is always before her, in front of her, leading. He is guiding. He is protecting. He never lets her go ahead of him, and it's for her own good. Nascent chivalry and unintentional hard-ons. Kairos, the god of opportunity, rolls around on his golden ball, Strong wings ripple at his ankles. He is swift. He has a tuft of curls right on the apex of his temple. Otherwise, he's fully bald. The lesson being, if opportunity passes you by, you have to grab him by the hair and quickly before he... And he's gone. Opportunity has passed you by, and who knows if you even noticed. But luckily, right behind Kairos lurks a shadowy metanoia, goddess of missed opportunity. She doesn't have a golden ball or spectacular wings. She doesn't even get a horse. No, her fate is to hobble along after Kairos, and to those she deems most worthy, she raises a cloaked hand to reveal a mirror. If you miss Kairos, metanoia can show you a reflection of yourself, one that might incite change, transformation. A metamorphosis is so drastic and necessary that you might surpass the potential of the opportunity Kairos had previously offered. 
And when Kairos passes you by again later, you will grab his curly tufts and you will pull. You will not. And when Kairos passes you again later, you will grab his curly tufts and you will pull. You will not watch him pull, roll away. You will not watch him roll away. I'm sorry. Guys, I really just plain. <clears throat> I'm going to try those last two lines again. And when Kairos passes you again later, you will grab his curly tufts and you will pull. You will not watch him roll away. Boom. Um, uh, yeah. Apologies. On compulsion, A. When Harold and I break up, I set reminders on my phone for every 30 minutes to instruct me not to call him. My index finger hovers over that e green icon, like breath waiting to intersect with skin. B. It is snowing and the little match girl stands outside. She strikes a wooden match and lets the fire prick at her fingers. She looks through a window of a house and inside there is a family laughing and being together. Her nails are very dirty. She would never go in, even if they invited her. She drops a hot match, and it makes a single black dot against all that fluorescent snow. C. My sister was dying, and I needed any asshole at all to buy me dinner. For those few hours, I could be anyone. I imagine telling him I'm a primate anthropologist or a nurse, and my sister could not be dying. I didn't meet Harold that night, but a week later he texted, so you don't drink? No, I'm allergic, I texted back. That sucks. I was sitting in the ICU. My sister was hooked up to all sorts of machines. Once I took a picture for my father, who was too weak to visit, but she looked so scary, so unbeautiful, that I couldn't show him. I was folding paper into books, gluing cloth to dense board I was sewing. Outside, a storm was only threatening. So you want to watch me drink a beer? My sister died later that night. Harold invited me over, and I spent the next month in a chaste bed with him, making adventures and playing board games. Nearly three years and many heartbreaks later, he still charms me. Opportunity rolled past me on his golden ball, and I yanked that tuft of hair so hard when I fall asleep on Harold's chest, he strokes my hair, which is still wet from our shower. He doesn't want his sheet smelling like smoke. Three years later, out of revenge and injury and desire, I meet a man from 15 years ago, and I know immediately that he is my metanoia. But I cannot look in that mirror. I cannot see who I have become. When I was married to Chris and we argued, he would call me a selfish bitch. I worry that I am. Harold is shopping for groceries, and I am sitting in my sunroom critiquing student stories. He calls me and says, have you had sex with anyone? Why? So you have. I didn't say that. But you have. I know you have. Later that night, I text and ask if he's going to break up with me now. He texts back, I could feel it, like I knew exactly when it happened. He tells me he's never felt anything like that before. He almost threw up. His stomach plummeted down somewhere. He couldn't breathe. This, he tells me, is exactly how I feel about him. 
except all the time. I name this anxiety. I name it love. D. Uh, Justin, Justin is a character here. You'll meet him much more later, uh, but he's my dead sister's son. After he's been picked up at the Circle K across the street, Justin calls me collect. He says, I'm sorry, Lily, but I got kidney stones again, and they hurt so bad, I didn't know what else to do. Well, shit, you're going to see it anyway. I shot up, okay? I'm man enough to admit that I was weak just that once, but I had to. You don't understand. It just hurts so bad. It's not like I didn't know. His erratic behavior, disappearing into his room for a week at a time, those evil eyes. He had me convinced that he hid in his room whenever he ran out of Xanax because his anxiety was so severe. I believed him because I needed to, because I couldn't handle my own life. I couldn't shoulder his too. So don't freak out when you see the needles, okay? Justin will be extradited back to Texas for violating his probation by living with me. Well, technically, for fleeing the state of Texas, and his piss test will be dirty. He's already been through rehab for felons. He's been in a halfway house. I'm scared and angry at everybody. Not wanting to chase ghosts, I pay a friend to clean out Justin's room. He finds a lot of needles. Yeah, my friend says. There's no way he just started shooting up while you were out of town. I need to balance disappointment with boundaries. He has no one else, and I can't let him back in my house. E. Halfway to her grandmother's house, the girl looks left to the path of sharp pins with primary color baubles. Then she looks right to the path of needles with its many squinting eyes. She rejects feminine domesticity entirely turns right around in her little red ballet flats, and goes back to work. On Catastrophe. When he left, he said, I love you. He hugged me from the passenger seat and got onto a plane that took him to a bus that crossed into Canada. Across the border, our old friends were waiting to drive him back to Kingston. I didn't release my seatbelt, but our embrace was not without warmth. It contained eight years, and I didn't even get out of the car. Eight years was long enough. I cried during the 45-minute drive home. I texted Dorothy, Chris left. I texted Dorothy again, I just took him to the airport. And this is not a joke. LOL, not LOL. <laughs> Still in awe, I went to Dorothy's house, and there we celebrated the end of a terrible relationship because this is how it all ends, with brutal resentment. If I hadn't failed my parents, I would be a medical doctor. I imagine this other Lily, wonder if she'd be my size or trimmer or fatter, if she'd have bad skin like me, a head full of white hair like me, if she'd do something as shameful as smoke cigarettes. I imagine her friends, would they look like mine? Does she dress like me? No, I decide, she doesn't. She would succeed in all the ways I have failed. She would not be a professor. She would not be divorced. She would be a good daughter. My dead sister's life became a catastrophe, and then she died, and passed the baton of destruction to her oldest son, Justin. She gave him her addiction and her confidence game, and they have both had their skin rubbed clean. 
wore Texas Department of Corrections uniforms, were assigned an inmate number. They both served their time. Justin has been in and out of jail and prison and rehab felons, rehab for felons since his mother died. It's been nearly three years, now six. It's like it's become norm normal or something, he says to me. Man, that shit should never be normal. This time, he's kicked the brown and his attitude is bright. Tomorrow, he's moving back in with me. I had wanted to be a good wife, and for the most part, I was. But the fact that my marriage was a catastrophe doesn't change. Nor was it entirely my ex-husband's fault. But yes, he was crazy and violent and abusive, and then it was over. Inside his dead mother's Gucci fanny pack, among the debris and trash Justin abandoned in my room after the first time he left New Mexico because he couldn't score, I found used syringes, a bent spoon. The whole room smelled of burning. He's been gone nearly four years now, and we are divorced, and now I pay him alimony. When he left, he said, I love you, and if I need it, can you help me out? I said yes. I thought, I'll say anything. Please, just go. Then came the day he wanted to make it legal, and he doesn't claim his trust fund in the paperwork, and I don't mention it either. He's an anarchist, radically ethical, a <laughs> feminist. He cares about indigenous rights. His dissertation, if he ever finishes it, is on utopias. And here I thought he would have more integrity than to take money from a woman of color. He calls it feminism. Dorothy texts, LOL, hashtag anarchist alimony. <laughs> Chris forced me to be more responsible, more adult, to take care of him. Stability, I learned, is necessitated by fear. Weeks when even my cat is too much responsibility for me. Mother to a 24-year-old with addiction and a dead mother, we are all damaged. At my dead sister's funeral, Justin's biological father came up to me, called my sister his wife. He said he can be a father to Justin now. He said his son was his responsibility. I looked at this man's face. It's ugly and sun-worn, tired and addicted. I remembered him putting a 12-inch chef's knife against my sister's throat. Justin was just a baby, and I couldn't have been more than 10. We were both crying and screaming, but Justin didn't understand what was happening. Yesterday, Justin called me hysterical, begging me to buy him a ticket back to New Mexico. His father and his whole family have failed him. Again. Responsibility, health, double knotting the laces of your boots before pulling. Once there is a village and it is very peaceful. The people in the village are happy and every night there would be a dance in the town square where children would run circle, rosy circles and teenagers would sneak quick wet kisses when adults turned their heads. But menace lurks just beyond these poorly fortified walls. One morning the villagers rise with the sun as they always do and walk out to greet each other as they always do and in the middle of the town square is a body and it was lifeless. The throat had been ripped open, as if by massive jowls. The next morning, another body, and another. 
Finally, after nearly ten moons have crested and fallen, a brave man steps forward and it is decided that he will venture into the forest without fear and capture the white tiger who did this. But how did they know the tiger was white? The brave man has a family and he kisses them goodbye, promising a swift return and a new tiger skin blanket to keep them warm during the winter snows. Shh, he whispers to his wife. I am the best marksman in the village. He puts a large hand around the base of her neck and pulls her in for a farewell kiss. She looks away afterwards, as if in, as if in, as if in embarrassment for the love she feels. And you, the man says to his infant son, you are the man of the house now. Do you know what that means? But the boy does not. The brave man laughs, gives the boy a quick pet, and leaves. He never returns, but the white tiger stops killing villagers, and so everyone forgets, except the boy and his widow mother. Many years later, the boy becomes a young man. His whole life he is trained for only one task, to kill the white tiger who killed his father. Every year on his birthday, the young man asks his mother for permission to hunt the tiger who killed his father, and every year his mother does not allow it. Finally, on the morning of his 15th birthday, the young man pleads, and there's a whining cadence to his voice that his mother remembers from infancy. Would it be different, she wonders, if he had actually had a father? Your father, she says, could shoot a tin can filled with water off my head from a mile away and not spill a drop. The young man fills a tin can with water and places it on his mother's head. He paces out a mile and turns around. His eyes are clear and his aim is taut, but he misses the can entirely. Recognizing his error, he begins to train again. For three years, the young man works and he works and he struggles. Then he says to his mother, I am ready. Again, he fills a tin can with water and places it on her head. Again, he paces out a mile and turns around. This time, he takes a breath. He points the gun and shoots. Over lunch, the mother says, I'm so proud of you, son. Your father would be too. Your skill has nearly met his. The rice she has cooked is perfect. Not too sticky, not too dry. She squeezes a wad of it into a tight ball and pops it into her mouth. Your father, she says, used to be able to shoot the eye out of a needle from a mile away. She shakes her head. I wouldn't expect you to be able to do that. But if the white tiger ate your father, he will surely eat you too. <laughs> Mother and son go outside. He places a sewing needle against a tree trunk and paces a mile out. He shoots and completely misses. Barely makes contact with the tree itself. For three years, the young man works, and he works, and he struggles, and he says to his mother, I am ready. Again, he places a sewing needle against a tree trunk. Again, he paces out a mile and turns around. This time, he takes a breath. He points the gun and shoots. The mother looks at the needle. Its eye is perfectly gone. She is joyful and distraught. You see, the boy's father was an excellent marksman. But he never performed these impossible feats. She'd made them all up. She had hoped that she had derived such unreasonable tasks that he would recognize his folly, his lack of preparedness, and never leave. But alas, she must admit, it's time. Other Lily doesn't fail at marriage, and her husband is Vietnamese. He respects her, too. 
So drastic is the shift in Justin that he seems to have drifted out of Ovid's pages. There was a time before when the pupils of his eyes were floodlit with evil. Heroin eyes. They were shiny and vast, oceanic, sublime. And now those eyes are gentle and caring. He cries from those eyes when he tells, he cries from those eyes when his family is cruel to him. He calls me and is no longer ashamed to weep. Catastrophic or not, we reach the same conclusion. Chris is gone and I'm okay. I've never been a news person. Too much catastrophe. Or I just don't care about anything other than myself. But not all stories must end how mine did with Chris. Some stories really do offer ever afters brimming with happiness. Other Lily smiles and her teeth are white. She lifts a perfect little Vietnamese cherub. It pushes its small hands playfully against her face. Their skin is pure. A year ago, I was still paying Chris alimony. He wrote me an email entailing all the reasons I should take him back. He suggested long-distance polyamory. I then understood the function of alimony. I was paying him not to be in my life. Before work, other, li other Lily listens to Democracy Now!, she donates money to PBS and NPR annually. She has, she has it set up for automatic pay. <laughs> Justin and I were never close. I don't interact well with children, and by the time I could find a language that might have opened up our communication, he was a brooding, angry teenager. He didn't want to hang out with his nerd aunt, and I couldn't blame him. I assumed I would never have a relationship with my nephew, and I was more or less fine with that. He'd grown into a thug with low-hanging pants and gangsta signs. I didn't know him at all. Other Lily serves her family dinner. She sits down next to her husband. He feeds their baby soft carrots. Little Tommy is making airplane loops around the table. I am the little match girl, standing outside and salivating at all that is not mine. I would take a million more black eyes and public bruises than the vitriol of Chris's manipulative words. They wielded power over me. I believed their heinousness, and sometimes, when I am least suspecting, the insecurity he drove into me still rises up to my skin in oil, and I break out often. The young man travels through the village and into the forest and out of the forest and into another village. It sits inside a copse of trees, and the white tiger is known to live just beyond. The village is very small, and the man makes his way to its only inn. The innkeeper is a gentle old crone, and upon her very first glance of this young man, knew immediately that he was the son of another very handsome young man, who many years before had crossed this same threshold looking for a warm room and a cold ale. Many men have traveled here before you, she says. She says you are not the first to go hunting the white tiger. The inn is humble, but not tragic. The thatched roof barely leaks, and all of the glasses are clean. They shine. 
Once there was a young man who you resemble greatly, and he was the best marksman I have ever seen. Why, he could shoot a grain of salt from a distance of three miles, and he didn't sur survive the white tiger. Surely you cannot do this. The innkeeper and the young man go outside. He places a single grain of salt on a tree trunk, paces three miles, and turns around. He shoots and completely misses. The young man asks the innkeeper for a room. For three years, the young man has worked, and he has worked, and he struggles, and now he is a man. Then he says to the innkeeper, I am ready. This time, he takes a breath. He points the gun and shoots. Splendid, the innkeeper shouts. It is a beautiful day. Sunshine slates the scene with hope. But, she says, I remember he also used to shoot a shot so soft it could split a single strand of my hair right on my head and still have the strand remain intact. The man is tired. For years now, he has worked and he has worked and he has struggled. So finally, he says to the innkeeper, I'm ready. This time, the first time, he fires, and the shot is so soft that it divides a single strand of her hair without removing it from her head. She sighs and shakes her head. These feats she told the boy she remembered his father doing. Well, she made them up. She didn't want to see another young man fall prey to the white tiger, but still, she says, it's time. The man makes his way through the forest. The brush is dense, and he has a good number of cuts along his arms and legs, but he is diligent. He will catch this white tiger, this ghost. Although there are no roads or paths, an old crone woman crosses his way. She is very frail and hungry. He shares a rice cake with her. This is a dangerous place, and there's only one reason you might be here. She shakes her head. Turn around. Go back. You will die in the jaws of the white tiger, I promise you. Seeing her hunger, the man gives her another rice cake, and she continues, The white tiger is as cruel as lightning and just as fast. If you see him, you will already be dead. To kill the white tiger, you must catch him from very far away. All you will see is a white dot. The moment you can, can discern that it is, in fact, the white tiger, you may as well slit your own throat. That's how dead you will already be. She shoves the last of the rice ball into her mouth and leaves. The man sits quietly for many hours. He looks into the distance and clocks a map of the mountains and land. He memorizes each fold of the earth, each protrusion. He sits this way for many more hours. Soon he has sat there for days and weeks pass, and he is studying. One day, far in the distance, there is a change. There is a slow movement, a white dot raised against a geography he has blacked into his mind. He raises his pistol, closes one steady eye, takes a breath, and shoots. The landscape becomes stationary once again. At the hospital, other Lily saves two lives and loses none. This is just another day. Days before I find his mother seizing on the ground, days before she dies, Justin and I share a blunt, and suddenly we are friends hotboxing his mom's garage. He shows me Gia Medley, and we nod our heads to, to Kendrick Lamar. And then his mother died. 
When he was addicted to heroin, he would text me and I would try to ignore it for as long as possible. I knew he needed me to wire him money immediately. It was never much. He wasn't greedy. Just enough to score. 40 here, 60 there. His car ran out of gas too many times. My friend Dylan says, what's the catastrophe today, Lily? The man walks a distance of five miles to reach the white tiger. It is a large beast, and its white is unadulterated. He touches it. Its fur is subdued against the enormity of the thing itself. As his hand passes its ribs, he feels a knocking. Then he hears cries for help, muffled and distant and clearly distressed. He opens the white tiger's mouth and climbs in. Inside, it is wet and dark, but there is only one clear path, and so the man makes his way into the white tiger's belly. By the time the man reaches an opening, he is fully soaked in mucus and blood. A beautiful girl runs towards him. She is stunning in, the way, in that way that silences a man. You've saved me! You've saved me! She throws herself into his chest. What's this? A voice calls from a dark crevice. Are we saved? The man whose voice had just called stands up. He uses the white tiger's intestinal lining for support. He is not old, but he is not so young anymore either. The man who used to be a boy looks at this other man and sees in him a resemblance so clean, keen as to be unmistakable. Yes, this was his father. The two embrace with the warmth of a sun flare. The son returns his father to their home, and when his mother sees their approach, her screams contain uncontainable delight. Over dinner, his mother learns the beautiful girl is the daughter of the king's highest counselor, and tomorrow her son must bring her to the palace to reunite their family. The son rarely returns to his house in the village now that he is married to the beautiful girl. The king, seeing in the man a bravery and skill unmatched by any other before him, makes him commander of the army. They are terribly happy to this very day. And as for the man and his wife, tonight they sleep under the warmest white tiger fur blanket in all the lands. I am Justin's only family now. I wasn't some victim, though. Our relationship was a map of hurt, and its scale was strictly emotional. Face the facts. There is no other Lily, and I'm pretty satisfied with my life. Once, the tiger's wife became very ill. Although they lived in the wild, the tiger traveled through many lands to find a doctor who would treat his wife. Treat my wife, the tiger says, and I will not eat you. Many times, he had been forced to eat the doctor. And the tiger's wife became more and more ill until she died. The tiger was forlorn. He gathered kindling in his mouth and splinters arched into his gums and tongue, but he pressed on. Her funeral pyre was blazing. Taken with grief, the tiger joined his wife in silence. There were no grand trumpets, no cries of despair. Real sadness does not need a performance. He placed his body around hers, holding her gently amidst wild waves of fire. 
and in the smolder of morning, the wind flitted away swirls of ashy particles, and an incandescent white tiger stepped forward. Thank you. So I'm going to introduce uh, Melissa Bañales. If in the long run we weep together, hold each other, wipe each other's mouth dry from the kiss pressed there to seal the touch of spirit separated by something as necessary as time, we will have done enough. Missy Fuego, the main character in the novel, Life is Wonderful, People Are Terrific, by, by Melissa Bañales, appears as a desublimation of what the self must be and is expected to be throughout a series of adventures and tragedies that revolve around a Chicana, lesbian, feminist, punk, 18-year-old college student. Or, as Missy Fuego would describe herself, all I know is that the me, the real me, just came out, and in all my straight-up L.A. Mexican, head-swinging, chola, tough bitch of a girl. An L.A. Chicana lesbian feminist punk reflects on the experience of being within an existential conundrum where rules are broken, along with dreams and expectations. Missy Fuego explores and expands her Chicana identity throughout a multiple set of connections and disconnections with feminists, Chicanas, freaks, weirdos, punks, radicals, mixed, raised folks, queers, and other personas. Missy Fuego asserts within moments of reflection on the statement, el bien es deseado, el mal es permanente where morality inflicts no wound, but its antithesis is what is present, all that which is immoral. This is a motif enacted by the city or cities that appear in the novel. They build a home for Misi Fuego to live, a home that is a set of histories, interactions, politics, and relationships, spaces that are charged with radical history, such as San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Santa Cruz. It's among the spaces where Missy Fuego loses track and sense of space and time to immerse herself in an underworld experience, in an utmost unconscious exploration of her identity, where the raw, the real, real, and the potentialities of life emerge and drive her experience. In a weaving of elements, the writing, the language, is charged with such an energetic capacity that emotion and feeling become the drive to where the reader is engaged. Unable to resist it, the reader falls into an underworld narration of Chicana lesbian love, tragedy, neo-Nazi encounters, denied, college, strip clubs, the riot girl movement, sex, lots of sex, and community building adventures that will set up Missy Fuego as a heroine in a world, just as Kathy Acker characters and stories were set up, 
of literal madness. And the madness of love is the destructive refusal of the established ways of life. Uh, Melissa Bañales is an award-winning author, performer, filmmaker, educator, and cultural critic. She is the author of Life is Wonderful, People Are Terrific, Say It Without Your Whole Mouth, and 51 Poems About Nothing at All. She is a community builder uh, with the Los Angeles Femmes of Color Collective and Con Fuerza, a radical Chicana feminist collective in the heart of East L.A., she lives in Los Angeles. Um, please, let's all warmly welcome Melissa Bañales. Hello. Oh. We're here. <laughs> so I'm going to arrange myself, if that's okay. I just want to thank you, Lily, so much for that reading. And... And thank you for, um, I needed a few more moments, so thank you for going first. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. Oh my gosh, I'm still there. I'm all, oh yeah, it's my turn. Okay. <laughs> thank you for your patience. I'm going to read from Life is Wonderful. Um, I, very, I, I never thought I would write a book this wild. I never thought I'd write a novel. Um, I was a poet for many years, and then I was a closet story writer, and I wouldn't tell anybody about it. Um, I was too scared of them criticizing my stories. <laughs> Poetry was easy, especially because I did slam. So I was used to people throwing bottles at me, calling me names you know, taking a piss while I was doing something. I, I was used to that. But the thought of someone saying something about my stories <laughs> felt very... <laughs> I was going to cut someone. So I felt very, very vulnerable. Um, but I started writing this book when I was invited to do a reading called Perverts Put Out. And it was all writers who write erotic writing. And uh, they said, can you write an erotic story and I said, well, I'll try. And it was, it was not erotic. It was very funny. And, <laughs> and, and in fact, the, 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 the organizer said that. He goes, that wasn't erotic at all, but it was so funny. And I think you should write this as a novel. So I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Fuego, um, even the outcasts amongst the outcasts. Um, and uh, I'm also proud of this book. It was a finalist for a Lambda. And I, I'm very proud of that. I never thought I would write a, a, a book that would impact LGBTQ people. And as someone who's been out since 1994, I feel very proud of that. So um, this book is for us. The freaks, weirdos, punks, feministas, radicals, POCs, mixed-race folks, queers, dykes, homos, poor kids, hustlers, orphans, hermosas, working girls, ladies on poles, dreamers. Potential. All you need to know, too, is that Missy's 18 years old at this time, and she's just landed in Santa Cruz from L.A., and it's 1996. There's something about waking up with a hangover that reminds you, yes, you have a body and a mind, and now you have to deal with it. 
The sun was sharp, clear. I've lived near oceans my whole life, and at the sake of sounding really fucking shallow, I only chose this school because it was near the ocean and had a well-known punk scene. And it's an hour away from San Francisco, but three weeks in, and I'm already well on my way to self-sabotage, as proven by my current meeting with the Dean of Student Affairs. You know, Missy, you can call me Ruth. We are on the quarter system, and so if anyone is already falling behind in the first three weeks, it doesn't look good. Okay. You are here on a scholarship. Okay. I know that Brown University offered you a place. It's clear you're very bright. But here in Santa Cruz, we aren't just concerned with brightness. Okay. We're concerned with a total, well-rounded individual, you know, a spiritual, grounded, eager warrior of knowledge who wants to explore the depths of their own consciousness. Under my dark glasses, I could see the outline of the redwoods through her office window. In Los Angeles, there are trees, but no forest. I'm going to a school in the forest, and it's clear that I didn't think this shit all the way through. As you know, Missy, we don't have grades. Those arbitrary letters that are supposed to determine a person's intelligence and skill. No. Here in Santa Cruz, we have evaluations. So you, we can really show you how you shine or where you need to pick up the torch a little bit. My head was fucking killing me. Once again, this was my fault. I'm always drinking in the wrong order. Beer before liquor. There's only six weeks left until finals, and then, poof, the quarter is over, the courses are finished, and you move forward. So you see why I have to have this talk with you now. The beanbag I was in felt like a comfortable stomach, only not at work. And she sat on one of those yoga balls, gently bouncing up and down. The forest was still there, and so was the vodka in my backpack. I feel like you're really receiving me right now, Missy. I can tell that you're a deep person, and you're really feeling the positive vibes and energy that I'm sending out to you right now in this moment. So I can count on you to be more energetically open to this place, to this new plane. Okay. Is it really okay? You know, I'm your friend here. Go ahead. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, I'm drunk. Yes, yes, drunk. We're all drunk in one way or the other. You're so right. No, I'm drunk. I know, I know. It's easy to get drunk in this place, Ruth chimes. You're telling me. It's so easy to get drunk in the trees and smelling the ocean and all the wide open space the universe offers each of us in our lives. Right. Yeah, do you, do you mind if I just get down to your level? And Ruth says this smiling and she hops off the yoga ball and she gets into a beanbag beside me. Tell me more about being drunk. I'm really liking this connection we're making, Missy. Look, I'm really drunk, I said. Yes, yes, keep saying it. The more we say it, the more we feel it. Believe it, be it, be drunk, be drunk. She closed her eyes and started taking those deep breaths. I'd heard about. Seriously, Ruth, I'm drunk, I said, sitting up and opening my backpack. 
And I pulled out the bottle of vodka from my bag and showed it to her. And she looked at the bottle, then me, then the bottle. Oh, I see. I see. Her smile fades. So if there isn't anything else, I said. She tried to smile at me as I got up, but I took my bag and the bottle, walked out the door and down the wooded path. It was about 8.30 in the morning, Monday. I hadn't been back to my tiny room in the woods for three days. I just took the bus back from my other house with JB in San Francisco. Working weekends in the city was okay, except when you were a stripper, which I was. It was long nights, and I couldn't drink, and I got bored easily. But $350 later, I reminded myself that it wasn't so bad. Plus, JB was almost never there because he was touring with his band most of the time and being a big, bad, punk rock piece of shit legend, it was cool. I finally reached my door and it hit me that I was pretty alone. For the first time in my life, I was 18 and alone. There was a letter on my desk from my brother. I always knew it was from him because it had been opened, then resealed with a sticker on it that said, L.A. County Jail. Werita, you're a big college girl now. I'm still here waiting for my court date. Thanks for coming to see me before you made your big exit. Things don't look so good for me. My lawyer thinks I might be here a while, and then there's whatever happens next. Just keep your head up, flaca. And don't let no one tell you nothing. Remember where you're from. I took out a pen and corrected the no in no one. It was the student in me. I wasn't a complete fuck up. There were just times I was really good at not caring. I knew I had shit to do, but I couldn't remember any of it. I just laid down and let the day figure itself out. This is a part of the novel where uh, Missy has now finally made a best friend. And, uh, but she's been living a double life. She's been living this you know, feminist, lesbian life in Santa Cruz and then running to the city and being a stripper. And she's very conflicted about this. So uh, she's about to get caught. <laughs> I caught my usual greyhound to the city, rolled in about seven, jammed over to my house at JB's to do my usual waiting or nap before I got to the club about nine. I had been working the night shift the last month, and I was lucky. There was talk of San Francisco cracking down on North Beach, meaning they were fed up with what everyone knows to be stripper row. Harry's was situated in the heart of Stripper Row, a literal block and a half of nothing but strip clubs, peep shows, and a few erotic boutiques, which is a nice name for sex shop. These boutiques also had back rooms with private porn theaters and even some peep shows, though everyone knew that if you wanted to see a peep show, you went to stilettos. I heard a rumor that all the dancers there were les, and after months of working right across the street, I couldn't find the courage to walk my ass right in there. I had to admit, I didn't get why any girl would work a peep show. Every girl I knew, the worst money was in peep shows. Imagine standing in the doorway of a tiny room all day. I'm talking hours, waiting for some dude to roll through and hopefully choose your tiny room to get a show in. I did the math once. They sometimes don't even make 10 bucks an hour. A girl can make that just waiting tables or working in a fucking bar, clothes on, no creeps in sight. Well, mostly. I was definitely in this for the money. And dancing on a pole, giving lap dances that made me at least 200 on a slow night or a day shift, which I decided was worth my time since the bus was $10 round trip from school to the city, then back again. I paid my rent at JB's in one night, and the rest of my money was mine. All mine. Even with my scholarship, school was costing me up the ass. Plus, it was easy. I mean, too easy. Show up on time, get naked for a few hours, go home with a wad of cash, do this two nights in a row, school during the week, keep my mouth shut about it, the whole thing, then repeat. 
I was actually making real friends at school. And in Santa Cruz, I was getting nervous about people finding out what I did for money. Okay, I was worried about my new gay life, finding out about what I did for money. All the dice in Santa Cruz seemed to be into riot girl and feminism and women getting respect and all that. Those chicks were always talking about how degrading porn was and that stripping was just like prostitution and ruined lives. I wanted them to like me. I needed them to like me. The thought of being rejected again was all too familiar. It haunted me. I couldn't let it happen. I had to keep things under wraps for as long as possible. No matter what, this meant more lying, more half-truths. Fuck. I worked my usual shift. It was 3 a.m. by the time I was changed into my usual punk rock nondescript uniform of Dickies, baby tee, Vans, shaved head, a little lipstick, fitted bomber jacket. I stepped onto the street, ready to walk on market and hail a cab when a voice rang out to me in the early morning darkness. Missy? Hey! Oh. My. Fucking. Goddess. It was Tommy. It was fucking Tommy from Santa Cruz yelling my name, my real name, on stripper row at three in the morning. She ran up to me, excited to see me. Hey, I thought that was you. What are you doing here? Are you meeting someone too? Tommy said, um, I was taken totally off guard. It was late and I just got off work and the shock of seeing her must have been written all over my stupid fucking face. I couldn't come up with a fucking lie fast enough. Wait. Tommy said, walking towards the window of Harry's where some of the photos of the dancers were posted, where my photo was posted. Is that, is that you? That's you, isn't it? She said, pointing to my picture with the name Roxy underneath it. I continued to stand there with my dumb look and I tried to open my mouth, but when I did, no words would come out, none at all. That's you. This is why you come to the city every weekend. There was just no way to talk my way out of this without sounding like a complete dumbass or worse, a complete fucking liar. So I decided to admit defeat. The thought of meeting girls, maybe even falling in love with one, having friends, it was a nice dream, I thought, but not for me, I guess, whatever. Yeah, that's me, I said firmly. Wow, it almost doesn't even look like you. Crazy. So I guess you think I'm some big feminist lesbo traitor or something. You never want to speak to me again. Fine. Cool. I started to walk down the street when Tommy grabbed my arm and stopped me. What are you talking about? I don't care. Seriously, Missy, I don't fucking care. She smiled at me after saying this, and it occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, I'd made my first real friend in the tiny beach town. Really? Because I haven't told anyone in Santa Cruz except for this one chick, but she doesn't live there anymore, and she moved to Seattle, I think. And so nobody then... I was rambling off words faster than I could put the sentences together. There was a huge relief in just telling someone the truth about me and actually having them not care that I couldn't stop talking. I couldn't stop telling the fucking truth. Until Tommy interrupted me. Seriously, it's cool. It's totally cool with me. And I'll keep my mouth shut about it. I promise. This is later... And this is from a chapter called The F Word. So Tommy gets a job at the feminist bookstore in town called Our Space. That was like a real bookstore. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, this is, this is going to be Missy's first, you know, big, big feminist party. I hung up and started figuring out what to wear. Do feminists even care about that stuff? I just remember the house show at Tommy's, the riot girls making fun of my patches, the bands I liked. I really, I, uh, I really wasn't up for that bullshit again. 
I decided on a Tri-Bay t-shirt, my cleanest pair of dark blue dickies, my docks, and the most innocent, non-makeup-looking lip color I could find in case there were makeup triggers. I didn't even know if it was true, but my mother always told me that first impressions are everything, absolutely everything. My mother. I hadn't really thought about her since I'd left Los Angeles. She still wasn't speaking to me, but that was okay because I wasn't speaking to her either. It had been six months. She came home early from work and found me and Natanya making out in my bedroom. My mother stared at me, then her, then me again. Her face changed as she realized I wasn't who she thought I was. She just stopped talking to me. Then Natanya broke up with me because she couldn't handle me working at the club and then the thought of me still doing that up north, miles upon miles away, she'd had enough. I left right after. No real goodbye, not a word since. I wanted so much to never be like her, my mother. But here I was, right in this moment, putting together an outfit and all the right touches, just like my mother. Exactly like my mother. I decided not to think about her anymore. I didn't need this distraction right now, especially now when I was finally making things happen my own way, but really, I missed her, and I hated that. So that's from Life is Wonderful, People are Terrific. And uh, now I'm going to read from a new book I'm writing. Would you like to hear it? (laughs) So uh, it's called Adventure Awaits You in Hell, A Survivor's Manifesto. Um, uh, Part of my primary scholarship has been survivorship and the culture of survivorship. And uh, uh, April is not just Poetry Month, it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I've I've been a feminist for 22 years, and my main project as a feminist has been to end rape. And I have done so through scholarship and through being an advocate for rape survivors for 22 years. And uh, I think right now, Uh, More than anything, there needs to be more discussion of survivorship, how to survive, actually remembering that one day you will be an ancestor, one day you will leave something behind, whether you like it or not, know that somebody considered that before you were ever here, and that is what survivorship is. It's taking that into consideration. And uh, how many of you, well, I know my class is familiar with manifestos. I made them write one. (laughs) <laughs> That's what we do. We're like, we have to write a manifesto, so you have to write a manifesto. <laughs> um, part of manifestos is that they declare, they're all about declarations, and they usually start with because. So every chapter of this book is a story of survivorship that starts with a line from the manifesto. And this is called, Because What We Say, We Say in the Dark. Today, the art of pushing is a lost one. Finding her on the floor was the relief. It was getting the door open that hurt the most. The door to the other bedroom of my house, the room my grandparents lived in for over 50 years, doesn't have a lock, but it wouldn't open. And she, my girlfriend, was nowhere to be found. I felt a clear and sudden panic. I pushed. I pushed again. I resorted to banging, then yelling and banging, then more pushing with my entire body. The door gave a little. And she was this surmountable weight against the door. I made it in. She didn't move. I pushed her over. Her teeth were clenched. And there was a needle under her that rolled a little as I called 911 and told them that she was having a seizure. 
In L.A. County, everyone knows you never say drug overdose because the DEA headquarters for the West Coast is housed in L.A. And when you say drug overdose to 911, they send the police so that they can arrest you for drug possession after they bring you back to life. I started another series of pushing against her chest with my hands. I was a machine, a pushing machine. I was going to work this out. When I was seven, I went with my older sister to the mental institution. There were a lot of adults who decided my sister was different. I was seven and my sister was 22. There was a series of glass doors you had to go through and I ran to each of them with my hands in front of me so I had enough power to push the large glass doors open for my sister and my parents. I needed a running start. And damn, could I run and push. Running and pushing together, I had the strength of titans, and every glass door led us deeper into the belly of a very white place that was quiet, cold, and smelled of lemons. There was a window where we could watch the tests they were giving my sister. There was a picture test where they would show her pictures of everyday people doing everyday things, and they would ask her what was happening in the picture. They would show her a picture of a woman cooking, and my sister would tell them, it's the end of the world. And I suppose my sister would know, since she pushed many pots of rice and beans across the stove on a regular basis, but then these people, these adults I didn't know, would write down something on a clipboard, then come out of the room and explain to my parents that they could pick her up in a few days. This happened many times until finally I had memorized all of the pictures. And before they pushed my sister into another room and into the picture test, I told her, when you get to the one of the lady cooking, tell them it's a lady cooking. That's the right answer. Tell them this and you can come home. Then I'd begin my running start back to each large glass door and push, push. When the ambulance arrived at my house, they took me away from my girlfriend and placed me in the living room while they went to work. I couldn't see what they were doing. They thought they were arriving to the scene of a seizure. I imagine they saw the needle and realized what was really going on and probably had to take a moment to figure out their next move. There was a line of paramedics and firemen staring towards me, but not at me. They didn't know how to tell me she was dead, but I already knew that. I asked them to try again anyway, whatever it was, to save her. I asked them because I figured trying one more time couldn't hurt, and they did. And then, like the moment a flower unfolds right in front of you, she got up. She got up the way people wake up from a long nap. They simply rise. It was snowing outside, and my sister had not left her room for three days. I was 13, and she lived with her three children in a cabin on a mountain. It was the week after Christmas, well after Las Posadas and all the tamale-making in Catholic churches Chicanos could handle. She hadn't left the room. In fact, she hadn't left the bed or her clothes, and her eyes never blinked. They were open and fixed on the ceiling. I would routinely go in to spray air freshener and put towels under her to soak up her urine since she didn't move to go to the bathroom. She was so still, a delicate statue. Her children, my niece and two nephews and I, would comb her hair and push her on her sides because I had read somewhere that people who stay in bed like that and don't move can get these sores all over them. There was no way of knowing when she would go into one of her trances. That's what we called them. 
We saw a show on TV where a magician hypnotized people and they did things they would never do completely out of nowhere and for no reason. They called it a trance. And we decided that's what this was. I always wondered if it was more like a vacation. I imagined that she was dreaming even though her eyes were open and in her dreams my sister was deep in a clear blue ocean and the sun was shining and all you could hear was the water and the sky. Then on the fourth day, as kids would hear the shower running through the closed door and like the people on TV, abracadabra, there would be my sister, dressed with her hair done and makeup on, smiling at us and baking five pies in the kitchen as if nothing ever happened. Ta-da. I don't remember what was said after the ride home from the ER with my girlfriend. I remember it was dark, even though the hospital was only 10 minutes away. The road seemed like it went on. I remember we took a bath. I looked at her veins, paper skin. They looked like a series of small dried up rivers. Heroin does that. The veins become so flat, you swear you were looking at an old atlas. They are a unique shade of blue, like the highways. And while they're supposed to connect, they break off into tiny roads to nowhere. I spend many years helping her clean up, only to find her living out of her spoon all over again. I spend many years watching my sister hold a bottle of Jack Daniels close to her the way I hold memory or love or myself. I find my body stretched against a woman who finally passes out and the room doesn't smell like death anymore for now. And her breathing against me is the only sign I have that she is still alive. I feel my sister climb into bed with me. I am six years old and she smells like whiskey and she holds me so tight and her voice in my ears sings de colores under the full moon through the broken apartment window in LA and the more the colors fall from her mouth the more urgent we feel to hold on to them and any sense any joy anything I watch a woman I fell in love with go in and out of highs and lows and mood swings and desperation and I lose myself in the promises I made to try to make it work I live with a sister who carries a museum of scars and emptiness and will and confusion and I am taking notes I am getting ready for the next time, for the next fall for the next days in bed I am standing on the edge of so many beds and hospitals and blank white rooms and doctors and guesses and drugs and lies and mistakes and I am mad. I am mad. I am so fucking mad. She, you can insert the she, stares off into a distance. You can insert the nothing and you learn to be thankful. You can insert the prayer because at least she is peaceful. You have been raised to believe in magic. So you know there is a kind of magic in having absolutely nothing. They have names for this. Bipolar disorder, affective disorder, manic depression, catatonia, personality disorder, borderline psychosis. I have many memories for this. An arrow in the heart, sand slipping through fingers, my lover's hands around my throat because I won't give her dope. My sister drunk, always drunk. My father lighting candles at the church, praying only for my sister's happiness because he says unhappiness is its own disease and it can eat you whole like a cancer. My sister taking me to my first drive-in movie at 10 o'clock at night in the heart of L.A. in her old man's 1962 Super Sport. And she buys us anything we want and pushes us all on the swings in the night air. And her smile is so big she laughs and laughs. And I remember that she is a person and not an illness. And how now I return to this tiny house in L.A. to make my stay. And I rarely think about the room that my ex died in for two minutes. But only the room she lived in.
And despite what those who love me think, despite how I have carried on alone, I miss the potential of her. All that tremendous possibility. There's a kind of curse in remembering everything. There's a kind of blessing in seeing all the parts of the story. My ex told me sometimes this illness makes me feel so dark inside my mind. And you are so full of light. Maybe that's why I keep finding my way back to you. I know it's not fair. All I want is you back and I know it's not fair. You probably say that to yourself every day, knowing that it will never fully happen. I know I must sound like a selfish asshole. This is what I'm sorry for the most. Los Angeles is the most beautifully complicated city, Flaca, my sister says to me. You know how it can be afternoon and all you can hear is the birds and wind? Viente a todo. It pushes you through the day, kind of gentle, and you almost forget yourself. And everything that seems wrong isn't really that way. I know it sounds crazy, but hey, I never said I wasn't crazy. And this is going to be the last piece I read as we are running out of time. I was going to read a new poem, but I have snot on my face. And welcome to the snot reading. Um, Thank you, Brendan Som. Okay, uh, <laughs> this snot's for you. It will never end, okay? The jokes will never end. I have a joke, too. It was told to me by Michelle T. How do you get a one-armed punk out of a tree? Throw him a beer. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Does that offend you? <laughs> it's just a joke. Um, but I heard that my poem, Dig, was done in the graphic text class, and I had some beautiful gifts given to me. So I was actually asked by somebody from that class to read this. And thank you for listening. This poem is called Dig. I want to tell you about my grandmother and planting roses, how getting the soil just right for the seeds requires your whole body, crouched, hunched, both hands, both arms, working, massaging, rotating. My Abuelita didn't use a shovel, just some water, her hands, patience. She waited for the ground to invite her, and when the black mud slid through her fingers, she went in, and in this story, I am 11 years old, and I go with her. Though it starts slow, it quickly gathers momentum. And there we are, pushing, sweating, all smells, all dark and thick. It's always an ugly business getting to something so beautiful, she would say. Can you turn the earth, mija? I keep going. Find my chest to the ground, my neck bent, I'll be honest with you. I was holding back then. Because I was afraid to get dirty. Afraid I wouldn't get the stains out of my knees. Afraid to be surrounded, to be held. I didn't know if I'd make it back from the mud. Effort, she'd whisper. Keep going. The sun to my back I'd pushed to get through. The moment when the seeds could drop was so close and I wanted it to happen but didn't know if my hands could get the job done. But we kept going. And before I knew it, I felt something give and I stopped. Took a shallow breath in my flat girl chest and pulled out. Now just sit, just for a minute, Tita said. I couldn't hear the freeway over my tita's house in North Hollywood or the wires buzzing with electricity or someone's favorite show or a phone call goodbye. I only remember the sky. It was so blue. And a small wind found my face. 
I want you to know this is how you make me feel. When I am up to my arms in you. Again, I put my chest to the altar of your heart. I'll be honest with you. I'm not holding back. I'm here to make a mess of you because only the brave aren't afraid to get lost. They live to be consumed, so let me get lost in you. Can you turn the earth, Miha? Can you let me use both hands to see inside your pain, your past, your desire, your hurt, and write a different ending? I enjoy the dark, the quiet. It is always an ugly business getting to something so beautiful. I want you to know that I come from a long line of growers, and I am not afraid to dig. Thank you. Thank you for your question. <laughs> uh, I would just say that, um, you know, the, the, the truth is people don't think fiction is fake. It feels real to them. I mean, they know it isn't. Like, we all know no one went 20,000 leagues under the sea. But, but we did. <laughs> and, and because that fiction creates that, that world, I think it's always going to feel real. So to me... I like writers are a little bent. Like to me, it's always real. Like it's funny when you're like, you make this sound real. I'm like, well, it's always real in my mind. Like it's only when I put it out there and then someone was like, this didn't happen. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess for me, it's to me, I just, I'm all in. I take it as this is real. I fully commit. And that's where I take that. Um, so I read from a book of essays, nonfiction essays, which means that it happened. Um, and so that's how it was real. <laughs> the end. <laughs> um, but if you, if you didn't know, um, like, there wasn't really a white tiger that was killing villagers. <laughs> so that part was fake, <laughs> but what I was writing was real. 
So the root of the essay is a sigh, which means to experiment and to trial. And so part of what I was doing while writing this essay is and putting fairy tales in the middle of them without any kind of regard to genre, um, other than to insist that what I write is creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Like, real, not real. Ethos is what matters. Mm -hmm. You know that. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Don't be shy. Or thank you all for coming so much. Yeah. 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 Thank you.